Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 6 of the podcast. Thank you for coming back. I'm your host, Ali, and I invite you all to sit and suck for a while. As always, if you have any topics or questions you would like me to address on the podcast, please email me directly, or you can reach out to me on Facebook and Twitter. You should also be subscribed to our Facebook and Twitter, just so you don't miss any news about upcoming episodes. Today, we'll be talking about trauma and what it looks like, the different symptoms, and we'll also look at the different modalities of treatment for trauma. Additionally, today we have a special guest with us, a fellow colleague and co-worker, Ashley Wilkinson, EMDR specialist. Ashley, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Ashley Wilkinson. I have been working in the field for the last 15 years as a foster care and adoptions manager. I'm also licensed as a clinical social worker and I am really excited to be here. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's get started with the show. So, Ashley, can you tell us a little bit about what are the main causes of trauma? Well, majority of people in their lifetime, uh, about 70%, if not a little bit higher, are going to experience a traumatic event at some point in time in their life. Perhaps the most common events in which someone has an experience a traumatic event are people who have been in combat. War veterans are the most common. And we'll talk a little bit later about post-traumatic stress disorder. That's usually the most severe. Childhood abuse, which can be broken up into sexual abuse, physical abuse, and neglect, is also another common traumatic experience that people have in their lifetime or experience in their lifetime. Being threatened uh, with a weapon or in a severe accident, which one may experience death or where their life is threatened, such as a car accident or a, a fall something along those lines. So you mentioned earlier PTSD and that's uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. So does a trauma develop into PTSD? Yes, it can. Most people, when they experience a traumatic event, they have what is called acute stress disorder. So typically when your, your body responds to a event that is threatening, your alarm system goes off, and we'll talk a little bit later about what that means. But over time, usually within a four-week time frame, you stop experiencing those symptoms. So those can look like flashbacks, thinking of the event multiple times, um, a heightened level of anxiety when you're in the presence of the same stimulus, eventually the brain is able to work that out. Mm -hmm. However, with a post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis, that means that your body's alarm system has not been able to sort through some of those traumatic memories, and that's when that diagnosis is given. The symptoms extend after a month or more. Okay, so if someone 
experiences a traumatic event, but it's not dealt with or coped with in a healthy way or doesn't seem to go away in a short period of time, that's when it turns into a post-traumatic stress disorder. That is correct, yes. Okay, so I'm seeing that there are different categories of symptoms that someone that is diagnosed with PTSD can experience. Mm -hmm. What are those symptoms and what do they look like? Well, as I was mentioning before in regards to the acute stress, flashbacks is one of them. Um, a flashback is basically someone re-experiencing the event over and over and over again. These can be bits of memory that they see, so it can be distressing memories. Um, their entire body begins to tense up, cortisol levels start increasing, their stress hormone, all of that begins to kind of override their system. And so it actually feels as if they are in that same traumatic experience, but they're actually just in present day. Another one is nightmares and dreams. Oftentimes clients with post-traumatic stress disorder are dreaming very vividly. These dreams can be themes of death, violence, the actual traumatic event happening. So if someone was in a car accident, they may dream of that same car accident every single night, multiple times in a night. And then also just being around everyday life. So your five senses are typically um, engaged as well. So for example, you might smell something like if you were in a car accident, you might smell tires burning that could trigger your memory back to that accident. Mm -hmm. If you were assaulted and you walk down to your laundromat and it's dark and you, you know, it, it, that could trigger a potential okay. flashback. So things in your like mind, that. things that are associated with that traumatic event can be anywhere, really. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And that can be pretty frightening for someone. Can that lead them to a state of avoidance, really? trying to avoid people, places, and things that can be associated with that Absolutely. traumatic event. Absolutely. Especially war victims, people who have been sexually abused, physically abused. They don't want to be around their perpetrators. Someone who has been in a car accident will avoid getting into a car. Anything that would even lead up to them being in a car could be another example of avoidance places if it happened in a park if it happened outside their home sometimes even in their home I've worked with rape victims uh, where they were unable to sleep on their bed and completely had to remove their bed out of their house and uh, slept on their couch for several months before they were comfortable getting back to sleeping in in that bed okay and how does the PTSD or the trauma affect the psychological and the, I guess, the, the overall mental well-being of an individual? Well, their body is in constant fight, flight, or freeze, which is what I've been referencing in terms of the body's alarm system. So when we, when anyone experiences an event that is traumatic or where their life is threatened, the body immediately goes into kind of a primitive brain mode. So with my little kids, I'll explain to them, have you ever seen a squirrel or a rabbit? What happens to them? Mm -hmm. They freeze or they run or they try to fight you, right? They start hissing, making noises, try to get you away. The same thing happens to people. And 
We are unable in that moment to really feel our emotions because we are overwhelmed in trying to get out of danger. So when the body relaxes, then there's these leftover emotions that happen. Okay. And with someone who's experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, that feels like it's happening all the time. Their body's constantly tense, small noises that would not necessarily be um, upsetting to you or I could be very upsetting to them. And again, it's all very specific to that traumatic event. So if it was a car accident, sometimes even just hearing a car turn on or stopping at a, you know, at a stoplight and that's enough and it, it, it triggers that feeling all over again. Okay, so in a lot of ways, the events of the trauma aren't processed completely by the brain in that regards then. Exactly, exactly. And the brain can't really make sense of what occurred, and there's all these residual feelings and thoughts that can't really be made sense of. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happens. So then that particular person starts having feelings of hopelessness. They feel like they can't get out of it. The depression is, you know, off the charts. Their anxiety, their body's in constant fight, flight, or freeze. So they're so anxious they are not able to function um, in their daily lives. They're constantly trying to combat these flashbacks, these memories, the nightmares. They're not getting good sleep. They lose a lot of interest in the things that they were once excited about, like mm -hmm. activities. And, and oftentimes I will have clients that will come in and just say they're not connected to their feelings at all. They feel totally numbed out, mm -hmm. you know, and they kind of have this glazed over look and they're, they're almost to the point their anxiety is so bad they're dissociating. So this can be very, very stressful for someone to be working through on their own mm -hmm. and it completely inhibits their ability to function in daily life. Well, I imagine if someone is unable to deal with the trauma, it does develop into PTSD. You know, they're probably living life very much on guard, uh, always anticipating something bad to happen, not really feeling like they're relaxed or at ease, maybe even having issues just functioning on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, absolutely. Easily startled response, like I said before, you know, that edgy feeling, very quick to anger. You know, imagine constantly feeling like something is going to harm you. Mm -hmm. um, you're really jumpy, you know, and if you, even when you're in environments where that's not a realistic thought process, you know, and for these people who have experienced that significant amount of trauma, it doesn't matter. It is, it, they are always on edge. They are always ready to fight. So there's been a characteristic sometimes of people who are struggling with PTSD of just being involved in risky behaviors or behaviors that can be self-destructive in uh, nature. Why is that the case in some occurrences? So, like I was saying before, with that body's alarm system, our fight, flight, or freeze, they're looking for ways to numb themselves out. So a lot of people will want to drink very heavily because drinking or, or drugs of, of some sort kind of uh, turns that part of their body off. Our brain goes to sleep. Um, I've even had clients, too, who 
are especially some of my younger ones or people who have childhood trauma they love horror films because it, it stimulates that fight flight or freeze that arousal response so they're they're constantly looking for the next horror film they sometimes even become obsessed with that feeling because it is something that they're very familiar with uh, war veterans too you know constantly being in these chaotic environments that's what their body knows because that's what their body's been in that entire time it makes more sense yeah it yeah. makes more sense to them absolutely yep and there's also symptoms of irritability anger and aggression that can be exhibited by someone who is struggling with uh, PTSD as well can you explain a little bit about why that occurs? Yeah, their body is trying to constantly fight off these distressing memories, these flashbacks, these the way they, they feel very badly about themselves. We all have a tolerance of how we can handle certain things. And when our body is in a heightened level of awareness, we have a short fuse. We don't have the ability to process those things in a more reasonable, rational manner. So they're kind of on, they're always on this higher level. So when someone is saying something to them or they're feeling extra jumpy, they're gonna go right to that anger a lot quickly than you and I would compared to someone who's experienced a traumatic event. Mm. And I think similarly to when someone is going through the stages of grief, is it similar to that in trauma where Anger is just the absence of an understood or another emotion. It's just an emotion that helps fill that void until we really understand how we feel or what's happening in our minds. Yeah. I talk to a lot of my little kids about how anger always comes with a friend. So it is the first thing we respond with because that's what we know and i was mentioning before our brain that part of our brain the emotional part is shut down and we haven't had an opportunity to really sort through what those feelings were and oftentimes it's multiple feelings but because we are in that heightened level of awareness our body's main response is anger and that's how we behave it we act it out we lash out we yeah, we get very aggressive sometimes because we don't know what's happening internally. We're not connected to those feelings. Okay, and the shame and guilt aspect of it is sometimes attributed to by the feeling of being at fault, or how does that play a role exactly? For people experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, Often, uh, shame and guilt is a, is a reoccurring theme. Uh, they often sit in shame and guilt because they don't know how to stop themselves from all these different uh, intrusive thoughts, distressing memories, flashbacks. It's just a, they're on a constant loop. So some of them don't even know that this is normal based off of their experience with that traumatic mm -hmm. event and so they just sit with it and they feel like something's wrong with them the feeling of helplessness the feeling of helplessness exactly yeah so it just manifests and gets larger and larger until they can actually go back and begin to process those unresolved feelings in a therapeutic manner okay now, for adults, it's a little different because the adult brain is, you know, in some cases better able to process and understand what's happening. But for a child who hasn't yet developed their ability to process different events in their life, 
how does trauma differ and how it manifests and uh, is exhibited by a child? So most of the time for kids, it often comes out in their dreams. A lot of times uh, that's reoccurring nightmares, reoccurring nightmares that have a theme. Someone's hurting them, something bad's going to happen. And the most, one of the most common things, kids don't really have the ability because they're beginning to learn what emotions are, anger, sadness, you know, what that feels like. And depending on their family of origin, if it's not something that they're talking about on a regular basis, it's hard for them to make those connections. So we see it happen in their behavior. They often reenact that trauma over and over and over again, and it's in their play. We see them, you know, if, if they were in a violent car crash, we often see them playing and they're reenacting that car crash over and over and over again. If they were being physically abused in their play, you often see, you know, whoever the perpetrator is, there's somebody that's the bad guy that's hurting them and beating them, you know, and vice versa. It just keeps going and keeps going. And kids are very vulnerable with that because they don't have the ability to communicate what it is that's happening. They're doing it through their play. So adults really need to be in tune with what's happening there. And sometimes it can be missed. Now, trauma has different modalities of treatment from cognitive therapy, exposure therapy, and EMDR, which we'll talk about more later on. And there's also a medication aspect of it, working with a psychiatrist in combination with a therapist. But looking at the first one of cognitive therapy, just basic talk therapy, how does that help someone who is struggling with trauma? So cognitive therapy, as you mentioned, dealing with their thoughts, their automatic thoughts of negative behavior. Someone who would be let's say, in a bad car accident. And every time that they see a car, they're thinking of the event. So what we would do in talk therapy is we would kind of set it up to try and reframe that thought process to something more positive, uh, something that is less distressing for them. And then we would begin to practice that. And through time, through repetition, it helps to alleviate some of that stress linked to it with the hope of reducing some of that alarm system fight, flight, or freeze. It kind of brings it down a little bit. So in a lot of ways, you're creating new connections and allowing the person to make new associations. Yeah, the brain has a lot of neuroplasticity. So in doing the talk therapy, you're just by having a conversation that is positive, you're already beginning to rewire that client's brain mm. with positive neural networks. So continuing to repeat that pattern over and over and over again, they're going to start using that positive neural network as instead of using the negative one. It takes a lot of time. Okay. And exposure therapy, which is uh, you know, processing and facing the situation or that traumatic memory while in a safe place, allowing the patient or the client to learn different coping skills to deal with those situations while in that atmosphere. How does that play a role in the treatment of the trauma? So by putting a client um, in a situation where they would be slowly exposed to a traumatic event. So for example, uh, the car accident. Um, we would begin with probably just getting ready to be near the car first, and then we would start slowly getting inside of the car, and then we would start drive the car. So we take it and we break it down for them 
so that they begin to associate positive memories as opposed to negative. And we're checking for their, you know, arousal response. We're giving them tools to help them kind of calm themselves down through that, whether it's through breathing techniques, whether it is through some cognitive talk therapy is also mm -hmm. common in exposure therapy too, um, and helping them kind of get that. And then eventually the idea behind the exposure therapy is that you're desensitizing them from that negative stimulus to more positive one, and it helps to alleviate that constant fight, flight, or freeze from happening over and over again. So getting them to feel more comfortable with the discomfort. Exactly. And as we mentioned earlier, medication can also be a very helpful tool when treating trauma. I mean, working with a psychiatrist um, or seeking psychiatric help, in addition to the other forms of therapy we just talked about, can be a very successful way of treating trauma. Now, with eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR for short. This is something that you specialize in, correct? That is correct, yes. So can you tell us about EMDR, the background of it, how, who it helps? Yeah, I can. Francine Shapiro actually is the founder of EMDR. She founded it back in 1987. And she actually was one day walking through a park thinking about a distressing event and she recognized that when she was moving her eyes back and forth on the sidewalk she was no longer experiencing intense feelings about this particular thought that she had so from there EMDR was born basically what she began to do is she used it with war veterans initially for people who are experiencing severe post-traumatic stress um, and then since then, it has developed into more of an actual therapeutic intervention where it helps people not only with PTSD, but also with anxiety and depression. There is what we call a bilateral stimulus that occurs, and that is just a fancy word for someone who is either tapping on your knees or who has taking um, a pen or just your two fingers and moving it back and forth in front of your eyes. Uh, they haven't quite figured out why the movement of the eyes back and forth helps in helping you to access and process the information, but it shows Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who's kind of the father of trauma and traumatic memories, has done a lot of neuroscience, neuro research on it, and it shows that while you're moving your eyes back and forth, all these areas of your brain are highlighted and you have the ability to make new neural pathways and positively rewire your brain to eliminate some of that trauma. Hmm. So who can EMDR help? Does it work with someone who is struggling with other issues outside of trauma? Can it be anxiety, depression, or panic attacks? Yeah. EMDR, like I said before, is used first and foremost for people who have experienced trauma. That's kind of where it came from. But with further research, further development, more of that neuroscience catching up, 
It absolutely helps people who've experienced anxiety and depression, people who have OCD. I have also used it with my younger kids, and it's really cool to watch that process with the younger kiddos because they, they process really quickly. They don't have as many target memories, and I can talk about that a little bit later, but they move through some of that processing session a lot faster than adults. So what does a typical EMDR treatment look like? How long is it? How often do you see the patient or the client? And how does it look in terms of progression? How do you know if someone is doing better through treatment? Okay. So if we are dealing with just one memory, so for example, if we're just dealing with someone who was in a terrible car crash, oftentimes we will do about six sessions and that's one target memory. However, as I was saying earlier in the podcast, most people have experienced a traumatic event, about 70% of the population, um, at some point in time in their life. So oftentimes when we hit one target memory, the brain has a tendency to get really excited and then we're hitting all of those other target memories. So for example, if they were feeling fearful during the time they were going through a car accident, and that was at age 25, then let's say at age 10, there was a situation where they were fearful, and then another situation when they were five, they were feeling fearful. We could have, with EMDR, bring all of that up in Mm. one time. So the duration process, if we're just working on one target memory can be six sessions Um, and that usually is successful with clients who do not have a lot of trauma in their background. It becomes a little bit longer when there are more target memories or that client has a pretty large trauma history. It's not uncommon if someone like you said you know experienced a car accident and that brought on a certain feeling. It's not uncommon for those other feelings to come up from different periods in their life if it was the same feeling. Yes, yes, that is correct. So the cool thing about EMDR is in my sessions with them, we do the bilateral stimulus where I'm either tapping on their knees or I'm having them watch my fingers back and forth. And because we're stimulating both the right and left sides of the brain, after they leave a session, they are still making connections about that processing session. The brain is still processing that information. So when a client comes in the following week, that particular event or memory that we were trying to work through, they perhaps at that point have worked even further along in it. And so we go back in and I'll ask them on a scale of zero to 10, you know, is this particular situation distressing it would be a zero and if it's not it's the highest level that you can be would be a 10 where is it falling on the scale and so that allows me to kind of see where they are so let's say for example a a client said this event was at an eight and then a week later they came back and the client's like no now it's a five we know that they have continued to reduce that anxiety level or whatever that emotion was behind that event okay And you said that for children, it's a little different in that they don't have a specific target memory. What did you mean by that? So adults have years and and a lot of history that are linked to their 
memories where kids oftentimes just have a single episode. So like the example I was sharing before where they could have multiple emotions throughout their lifespan, kids don't have the same amount of intensity. So a five-year-old is only going to have five years worth of memories like fear throughout their, their life at that point. So when we go in and we target a memory that has to do with fear, they snap through that really quickly. Whereas with someone who might be 25 or 30, we might have multiple situations in which they are recalling as we're going through that one particular memory. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So if trauma is not treated in a healthy way, PTSD symptoms can be ongoing and they can heavily interfere with daily functioning. Individuals that struggle with trauma can begin self-medicating through alcohol or any other drugs. Again, like you said, help them numb the feelings Mm -hmm. that they're experiencing or just help them suppress all those negative traumatic thoughts that they're having. What other things can develop as a result of trauma? A lot of clients or people who've experienced uh, trauma in some form will isolate will significantly avoid any interaction with with people, with the places in which they were harmed in, a lack of self-care declines, suicidal ideations or behavior increases, self-harm, cutting is very common as well, trying to dissociate or completely dissociating in some of those moments because they are completely numbed out and they have fragmented off into different parts of themselves. Mm and they are unable to kind of bring that back together because the trauma was so severe. Okay, and if someone has experienced trauma and we talked about the traumatic symptoms aren't dissipating, they're not going away, what should that person do? What should be their first steps? I think telling someone close to them that they're having these experiences is usually the first step into helping them feel like they're not alone they don't feel like they're safe enough to tell someone that they're close to, contacting the hospital, contacting a local counselor, a clinician, mm-hmm. um, even your doctor. Your doctor can also do a physical exam or send you on to a psychiatric evaluation or psychological evaluation, mm-hmm. or someone that you know that has had maybe a similar experience sometimes. Um, there's often groups online that you can look up for you know, people who've experienced traumatic events as well. If you know someone who struggles with trauma, it's very helpful for you to also learn about it yourself. That way you can understand what they're going through and be able to help them in the best way possible. You can offer them support, but it's also important to really be safe and kind of mind your own mental and physical health as well. It's not uncommon for someone who is close to someone who is struggling with mental health issues or trauma specifically to experience compassion fatigue and also find that they are struggling with mental exhaustion. Would you agree? I would agree. I would definitely agree. And that if that particular person is seeking out help or support, trauma is it can be completely devastating and turn your world totally upside down. But there are people out there that can assist with bringing things back to normal where you are living a very happy and healthy life and not constantly feeling like you're stuck uh, or hopeless in your current situation. 
And again, if you find that you yourself need help because of the trauma that someone close to you has experienced, then by all means, do seek help because it's going to be an important part of their treatment as well. For you to be in a better place allows you to be better able to help them than you yourself being negatively affected and not being able to be there for them. Absolutely. Ashley, thank you so much for being on the show today. I appreciate you taking the time and coming on here. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we come to the end of the sixth episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for stopping by and thank you for listening. Also, again, if you have any topics or questions that you would like me to address on the podcast, please reach out to me via email or on Facebook or Twitter. Also, make sure that you're subscribed. That way you don't miss any updates regarding future episode release dates. Thank you all for coming by and I will see you next time.